Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast special bonus episode you heard uh, a couple days ago from me and from Aaron Orndorff and from Taylor Holiday talking about our side of really big news in the 4x400 front which is the sale of FC goods the first time we have taken a brand from acquisition all the way through uh, divestiture and uh, and so today special bonus like I said I, I wanted to bring on the buyers of FC goods who have become uh, not only great business partners but friends and uh, folks that we are really excited to be in partnership with you are going to really like hearing from these two guys they are incredibly smart in terms of um their area of expertise in business. They've grown something really massive, really impressive at Weiser Distributing. Uh, like you heard in the episode before, um, pretty different uh, business than what we have done before, but really complimentary to 4400. So we found a great fit and great partnerships here. Um, so I have I have here with me, Eric Weiser, the CEO, and Mike Childers, the CFO, COO. Mike, which one of those is, is one of those the right title for you and the other one's not? Yeah, we morphed it together into president. Oh, okay, great. So, okay, it's the CEO and the president. Perfect. Um, so there's Mike's voice for you. And uh, Eric, can you say hi? Happy as heck to be in South Dakota. <laughs> snow. Yeah. By way of Tampa for the last uh, three weeks. And in a couple of days, I'll be back in Tampa uh, for about another month and a bit. My wife and son are down there playing tennis and I'm back in the snow opening the mail and yeah yeah so you so um so we'll talk more about this in just a second when we jump in but um but Eric as the CEO of Weiser Distributing based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a beautiful town that I got to go hang out in, uh, in the midst of all of this. And, uh, but I imagine colder than Tampa right here in January, a little, yeah, <laughs> a little colder. All right, cool. All right. We're going to get into this in just a second. Um, I, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. So stay tuned. All right, Eric and Mike. Um, okay. So I, I was going to intro you guys a little bit more and talk more about what you guys do at Weiser or what you guys tell me you do. I really, I, you know, I really don't know all the way. Maybe you guys just sit around all the time and talk about baseball. At least you, Eric. Mike, I know, does, does not do that. Um, but uh, but uh, Eric, um, why don't we start with you? You are the CEO of Weiser. Can you give us the basic background of um, kind of what you want to tell people, what they should know about Weiser Distributing um, and uh, and how it started and what you do with it? Yeah, so my dad started, He was. Just, I tell people he was a hustler. He had a tool truck. And he sold to anybody, he says, anybody that had a check that wouldn't bounce, he would, he would sell to. Um, and even a few people where the checks did bounce. Uh, but he, he hustled around selling tools, anything that, whatever they were buying, he was selling. And that morphed into body shop supplies. Um, and he did that for 30 some years. My mom decided it was time for him to slow down. So uh, he said, would you like to come and take over this business? And I said, that sounds fine. I was a high school teacher at the time, tennis coach. Um, my wife and I, we moved to Sioux Falls from uh, Mankato, Minnesota and took over this business. And we decided that we needed to reduce our inventory. So we started selling a few things on eBay and then a few things just like magically sold on Amazon. We were like, whoa, what just happened here? Um, and early on, so this is 10 years ago when Amazon FBA was just like a new thing. And we, we had the guts to just use Amazon FBA before a lot of people were doing that. And so that really helped us scale the business with just two of us. We ended up adding a couple employees early, um, but we could scale very quickly. And because my dad's business had been in the industry for so long, we had these amazing vendor relationships and most importantly, credit with those uh, vendors. So we could that we didn't need bank financing at that point. We just could scale it with vendor credit. 
Well, fast forward uh, to now, um, we got we thought we needed to just sell automotive or auto body supplies, but we figured, well, that doesn't matter. We can sell just about anything. So we're in 18 different verticals uh, on Amazon uh, through national brands, brands you've probably heard of, all the way down to national brands you haven't heard of. And then we got into private labeling before that was cool as well, before everybody was YouTubing about it. We just stumbled into that and built it and we had a little bit of cash to invest in that. So we, we just, we ran with it. And now we sell, well, I think we have about 3000 private label products. Our general philosophy on that is we're the best of the lousiest. And that's in stark contrast to what FC goods does where they would say they're the, and I would agree, they're the best of the best. So this is new to us. And, and that was one of the main reasons that, that, well, first of all, I'm a huge baseball fan. So the, the company itself was, fun just to hear about, listen, talk about, and, but then to be completely opposite of what we're doing on Amazon is to sell the best of the best. And um, we, we knew that there'd be some learnings in here and some pain too, for sure. And we can talk about that later, but um, uh, that that's, that's how we got connected was. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, okay, there's so much there that I want to talk about. I, so I think Weiser is like a fascinating business. I, it, to me, I'll just tell you really, I don't know if I've told you guys this before in, in these conversations. Um, but when I first kind of came across you guys, my expectation was like, these guys do not know what they're doing and they don't have a clue about like what this business is. And it wasn't actually because of anything about you too. It was just like, it, it was just like this thinking about like, you know, in the early conversations about what made up FC goods, um, I, you know, I think I could tell right away that like straight up D to C was not your guys's game. And, but then the more that I started talking to you guys, I was like, Oh no, these guys really know what they're doing and they're really super smart. And they just haven't been in this exact little precise place. And within a couple of months of talking to you guys, it became very clear that like you were thinking about a lot of things much better than we ever were. Um, so that, that, uh, idea was, kind of blown up. And Eric, I'll tell you another thing. I don't know if I've told you this either. <laughs> this is maybe risky for me to say, but my actual first thought with you, my first impression was like, oh, this is just a CEO of a company that's doing well, who's a baseball fan. Um, and so whether or not anybody else actually wants to do this, this is one of the perks of being the CEO. He gets to buy the baseball brand for fun. And, you know, people can't see you guys because this is audio only. Mike is smiling a little, just enough to make me wonder if there's a little bit more truth to that than I'm letting on. But but then again, same thing happened. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Eric is like super strategic and totally understands what he's getting into. And it's and the fact that it's baseball is fun and it makes it a step in, like you said. But um, but there's this real clear strategic element to how like what FC goods does. And even at the scale and size of FC goods um, fits so well with you, what you guys are great at that. It's much, much more than that. And uh, I mean, that impression of you got pretty dis disassembled within like a couple of calls. So it wasn't like I like sat on that for forever, but I just, yeah, I just, I just wondered how much of that was going on. So Mike, do you, is there, you know, do you want to evaluate that statement at all? <laughs> There is a kernel of truth to that. Um, the fact of it is, is that we are on the opportunistic side of intentionality. And so we look at, uh, we've looked at a lot of different things and we're not going to do anything carelessly. You know, we're pretty careful as you, you've know, you know, you found out, it took us quite a while to get to a deal um, and being pretty deliberate. But Eric's passion about baseball, for me, it was more important that, um, there's a lot of different reasons, and Eric started to touch on why we found this to be an interesting uh, opportunity for us. And a, a lot of it, you know, your listeners all know, it's all about synergy. 
or win-win or whatever language you want to use to talk about a deal coming together. And so for us, we were putting a fair amount of weight on the learning value as we came to understand what you were about. And we were thoughtful about that from the beginning. We don't understand the D to C. We're fairly large in what we do understand and growing, but we also appreciate the market moves. And it's important for us to understand the D to C as opposed to, you know, in addition to being a great third party seller uh, through uh, online marketplaces. And, uh, and so that was part of the equation. And the fact that Eric has a passion around baseball and trading and that sort of retail arbitrage in his background, uh, it, that just was an extra for us in terms of uh, starting the in evaluation. Yeah, so, so um, I wonder, like, Eric, what can you tell people about the scale, or either of you really, what can you tell people about the sort of scale of Weiser? And you said, you know, 3,000 products, uh, white label. It's, I think it's just, for my listener group, I think it's an interesting thing because almost anybody who's probably listening to me or like following me and Common Thread Collective on Twitter and some of that stuff is is people who are probably like deep in the e-com D2C game. And so like, I think I didn't really even realize what the potential was for for like how massive business could really get. Like, can, can you just like, and I mean, aside from massive, just like number of products, like not even, to, uh, yeah, whatever you want to say about sort of like the size of Weiser and the scale of the operation. And I know there's, you know, more than just Sioux Falls and, um, and maybe in there kind of just like tell people before you guys got FC goods, what are you guys great at? Uh, so a little bit about the scale of the business um, that you can talk about and then, and then just talk about like, what do you guys see yourselves as great? I know what I think you're great at, but I like, you know, you know better than I do. So Mike can fill in the blanks here, but when it was just a few of us, you know, we're from the Midwest, so we're super cost conscious. So everything we did, when we looked to outsource it, we're like, that's too expensive. We can do it cheaper ourselves. I'll just do that on the weekend. My dad said one time we sold a product that we made $5 on. And I told him, I said, $5 girl scrap it. I said, uh, you're going to have to pick, pack and ship this thing. And when it's all said and done, you'll make five bucks. And he's, he said, I'll do anything for $5. And so <clears throat> that was a huge moment because I was just ready to throw it away. Like we were doing just fine. Just keep selling that on the truck. But he said, I'll do anything for $5. So I like challenge him. Like you got it, buddy. And so I started listing all this stuff on, on eBay. Um, and then once we got, you know, 20, 30 orders, I was like, okay, fine. I'll help you a little bit. And then 60 or 70 is that we hired our first person. Um, so we never outsourced <clears throat> any of that. So when, when we needed to take pictures, th this will probably be like dagger to your heart. We just plopped them with iPhones and, and this is like iPhone fives and, and uploaded them to eBay and said, that's good enough. And really it was. And, and that's always been our philosophy is be the best of the lousiest, make sure the price is right. And don't worry about the details. Almost exactly the opposite of FC goods. Um, but size and scale, we have 180 employees. 250,000 square feet of warehouse space. So that's another thing we're really good at. Like we own and touch all of our own inventory, except for FC goods for just the briefest of moments. And it's driving me nuts that it's not under our, our roof and control. So that's coming soon. Um, you know, nine figures of, of revenue um, and growing at 30%, you know, year over year. So it's not stopping anytime soon. Um, 15,000 products total. What, that's an important number. Over 300 brands. You know, there's probably some algorithm that people should figure out there, but 300 brands or so, um, and looking to add, you know, 
millions of dollars a year over year of new brands and then in growing our existing brands too, including FC Goods. Like we think there's an opportunity for white labeling with FC Goods. We haven't got there yet, but uh, there's there's something there certainly. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting ideas that you guys had right away. Like, and Mike, you, you said this to me on a call fairly early, the idea of sort of like creating a less premium version of FC Goods to grab a different market, market segment with the same product. And like, I mean, to you guys, I think that's sort of an obvious idea. Like, uh, just like in terms of the, everything else that you guys do so well, to me, that was like, oh my gosh, that's so smart. How did I never think about that? Um, so, so tell me, yeah. So, I mean, you guys are incredible, I think, on... Um, I mean, I, I, is it like a top 50 Amazon seller or something like that? Third party? Is that the number I heard? Yeah. And you know, that's, it's arbitrary because Amazon of course doesn't release this. We're yeah. the number two tool seller. We heard that from an Amazon person at their offices once, but that was like hush, hush. Um, but yeah, d- d- depending on who's doing the, the metrics, we've been the highs like 30 as low as 50, but we're somewhere in that, in that range. Yeah. So I, I don't yeah. go ahead, Mike. Yeah. yeah, Andrew. And that's not a pure size rating. And so, I don't want folks to be misled by that because for us, it's even more important. It's based on ratings and reviews and satisfaction of meeting, you know, all the customer expectations with which Amazon is just absolutely, you know, um, intensely focused on, which since that's been our platform from early days, that's our values and focus as well in terms of we're all behind the scenes to our customers. You're not. Right. You're FC goods. You're not. We're not. Our FC goods is not now. Um, but behind the scenes, we are just ruthlessly intense about being absolutely excellent at all the parts we do. And you asked Eric, what are we great at? And that's one of the things. And it wasn't overnight. We're talking nine years. Uh, I, I can't if I did the cager over the whole nine years, it's it doesn't make any sense. It's too large. But in the in the trailing years that we look through three, four five years, you know, in the law of large numbers, our growth is very substantial. And and we do it because we have the values that we build our, our team off of um, and the business off of. And we have it because of the ability to execute the things we've learned and the mistakes we've made. We're a learning organization. That's probably our number one competitive advantage. Uh, we're not a, we're not embarrassed to say we're not doing it all right. How do we do this part better? And, uh, and the stuff that goes on behind the scenes is um, not trivial when you're moving the volumes that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because I don't think you guys know this either, but I, uh, about a year ago, recorded an episode of the podcast when we were in the decision-making phase about, um, about were we going to sell FC Goods or not? We had a partner meeting uh, at the end of the year to wrap up 2019. And we were looking at the business and going like, is this a good fit for us to keep or not? I've talked on the, um, previous episode that we recorded. And and at at this point, people have heard, uh, probably about sort of some of the limitations that we had, um, with getting FC goods to the next stage. Well, when I recorded that episode, um, I said, there were a couple things that I think in my view, there was nothing before we ever went into the sales process. There was nothing, I didn't think FC goes was a bad brand or a bad opportunity. I just thought we were the wrong people to take it to the next step. Um, and I've, I've, I have told you guys that for sure. And I, I really stand by that. I think like it's a great and beautiful brand and has a lot of potential to go to a different level, but we just were the wrong people. And there were a couple of reasons I said that one of them is, um, distributing sales channels, which we are not good at. Um, and it was a key thing. So just like increasing that you guys are here, I'm talking to, like I said, like 
however you want to slice up the version of you guys being incredible at Amazon. Um, you know, you guys are really good at it, whether it's top 50 or not. Um, and then secondly, I was saying that there's operational and logistical efficiencies that we don't have that I think would really help um, on the supply chain side, but also beyond that on the fulfillment side. Um, and, um, and you know, we've shipped FC goes through a 3PL the entire time. They've mostly been really good with us, um, notwithstanding some recent concerns. And, uh, uh, and the, uh, but that 3PL um, had been there. You guys obviously can ship everything through you guys have warehouses, I know, both in in Vegas and in Sioux Falls. You cover a lot of the country that way. You know, shipping D to C that makes a huge. There's going to be huge element of of margin difference. Plus, obviously, just like pick and pack gets a lot cheaper when you can do it yourself. And um, you know, we're shipping out of Southern California. You know, more expensive to for the space to employ people, all those kinds of things. Um, so labor, you know, whatever than Vegas and Sioux Falls. So anyway, there's a million of those kinds of things that you guys can do better. Um, than, than we can. And then also, I think, you know, as you talk about some of the things around like product development, cash scale, like some of the size of your guys' operation allows you to invest in some of those things in some ways that were going to be a little bit harder for us. So, um, it's funny, like I, I didn't, you know, we got connected through a brokerage and a listing and all that. And I didn't like go seek you guys out, but it's exactly the kind of buyer that I would have expected. Um, in some, in some ways, at least that you guys checked a couple of the big boxes that in the beginning, I thought not us, somebody else. Um, and I really expect it to be successful for that reason. Um, so can you talk about, um, what you guys saw in FC Guzzi? You've mentioned a couple of times that you wanted the learning, you wanted to add this DTC portion. I think that's completely the right move for you guys, uh, to be building this in. I think it's at a scale that makes it so that you guys can put your toes in that water without honestly, without taking on huge, huge amounts of risk or something. Um, and so for you guys to kind of build out this side of your business, to be able to do more D to C, um, what else besides love of baseball and that, did you guys see in FC goods that you guys felt like this is a good opportunity for us? I'll go, I'll go you want first. me to jump in first. Yeah. So the, the first there thing was, and, and this might've been the brokerage, maybe it was the business. I don't know. It was really, it was, it was turnkey. Like, so we don't like the, the third party fulfillment. Not because they're not, uh, I mean, of course, they're not shipping fast enough for us and all that, but we really don't, I don't like them because they're too expensive. And so I love, but I like that part too. Like we're, we can just shut that off and do it ourselves and do it better. So like I could see the, the, the value add that cost me absolutely nothing to bring that value add in. Um, it was the right size of business. It wasn't too small. It wasn't too big. There wasn't like this massive risk because it was turnkey. Like I remember telling Mike, we can just let it be and probably be okay. We're not going to like kill it or anything, but we can just let it run. And it's just like a regular investment. Um, and we can slowly bring in all the value adds that we bring to the table. And by slowly, I meant like, I want to do it right now this week. And let's, I don't care if Mike would probably say, I don't care if the mothership goes down, like we're going to be shipping wallets as soon as possible. So Mike is really good about like, slow down. I'm really good at let's go. And then the middle is the answer there. But um, to, to answer your question, it, it, this is, it was a, it was a real business with like real people that was important, but it wasn't this massive business where I had to hire like 30 of your employees, didn't have to vet anybody that way. So that was a nice bonus too. Now, Mike's the finance guy. He'll, he'll tell you why, why we really bought it. Well, I, I actually love the two perspectives on this because what you're seeing about what it can do for the organization from where you sit as a CEO versus like what Mike is seeing sort of, I mean, cause like even in the evaluation process, we talked way more with Mike than we did with you, Eric. And that makes perfect sense. Right. Like, sure. So yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. So yeah, Eric, Eric hit on key points for us. 
So we're an organization, like I talked about, a learning organization, and and we believe in failing fast, trying things, which isn't to say we walked into this thinking we're going to fail with FC Goods, but we 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 we're looking for something to help us understand the the emerging social media influencer led fan based direct to consumer premium sell, and this was a a size that we could digest. Uh, the fact that it had standalone elements to it meant we could plug in and start to pay attention. The fact that we had comfort with the team that we were talking to through this, Andrew, with you and your team, mattered a lot to us, that we were gonna be able to work together in a transition. The way we structured the deal, we are both skin in the game um, you know, for the go forward. And uh, that's an important element to us. Uh, so. We also had this opportunity to come to understand, okay, so we have private, you, you call them white label brands. So we have white label brands, 17 of them. Uh, some of them are well-developed, some of them are newer, uh, some of them are larger. It's, you know, that's a big part of our strategic growth. And some of those can be packaged up and FC good to a premium sell, um, and, and you all have that nailed in what you brought together uh, in that equation. The off-branding that you talked about, we, that we discussed, is an idea that we have that we think we can take an off-brand, a, a lower-end version, and sell it through a mass marketplace, the online sales marketplaces, and not cannibalize the premium sell experience. Because you're selling an experience we're selling a good. And so um, so we looked at that and said, we want to learn. We want to learn both ends of this equation because if we can get a couple dozen of our 3,000 plus white label products through a different market at a different margin, through a different experience-based equation. And if we can with, have success bringing your very premium and successful growth um, product through a back channel through the mass market, we can do that with others. And you and I talked early in the equation about, hey, maybe there's other stuff for us to collaborate on going forward. In a big picture, FC Goods is just another private label to us. We greenfield our private labels. We start them from the ground up. You incubated one for us. And we wanted to study that and figure out how much are we willing to pay a premium to the four by 400 team for incubating that for us? And does it end up being equal or better than us growing them on our own? Does it accelerate us? Because in our, in this game, and 2020, if it taught us nothing, it's all about uh, you have to be prepared to get everything you can get opportunistically. If you're not growing, you are dying. And this is about taking advantage of what we've put in place to bring value to consumers through different mechanisms. And so that, that was a big part of our Eric, Eric laid it out. It was it, this one was big for us about learning, and we put some value in our equation. We also understood we're going to bring operational efficiencies to your equation, and we're finding that out in pretty short order. And so that's also the classic synergy opportunity. We can save a few cents here and a few cents there. Um, we can help it to scale for the next part. We understand that, and all of that was part of our our value equation. Man, I, I I just love that. It actually reminds me quite a bit of our story, but just that you guys just are at a farther along. And that like the first thing we tried to do was launch the very first thing that um, 
that 4500 did is that it had acquired Slick really early, but it was like a, it, such a different universe that it barely counts. But um, we, uh, I, I, I think you guys maybe know that we launched our own branch to start. Did you guys know that? Opening day supply company. Have you guys heard about this? Yeah. Well, we don't talk about it that much because it was a disaster. It was like we sunk a bunch of money into it and um, and and tried to build this brand. It was ba- it was sports themed baby goods and um, and we loved the idea of it a lot. Um, and you know, lots of it came out. The brand was designed beautifully. Same designer actually as who did FC Good, so it looked great and all those things. Um, but uh, we just made a million mistakes and. Um, and what we realized was that we didn't actually know anything about starting a brand. What we knew something about was scaling brands. And so we changed our model pretty quickly to, um, to be the step between what you guys are saying here, you know, us incubating a brand like this. Um, basically that, that stage that FC goods got through before we sold it to you guys. Um, you know, we knew pretty well and we thought like we could look at a bit brand in its infancy um, and get it from infancy up to the kind of the next stage. And then maybe from there, then you figure out what to do with it. And so uh, the analogy breaks down there uh, pretty badly, uh, but of uh, infancy or not, because you don't give away kids usually, but basically the idea or sell them. But the idea is that you, uh, the idea is that we could do that pretty well. And so what you guys are doing, like, I really understand. And what I'm guessing, I hadn't thought about this for you guys until right now, but what I'm guessing is going to happen is that as you guys do this, you'll make some mistakes, you'll realize some things, but that's all just the cost of the intellectual capital that you, that you build up from doing it and the organizational capital that you build up from doing it. And, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, what's clear to me is that you guys are just like savvy enough to, and the team that you have actually running the brand is so impressive that they are going to be savvy enough to go figure out a bunch of stuff in the middle of that. You can run the brand a little more efficiency because of the operational stuff we've talked about, uh, run it more efficiently because of the operational stuff that you're talking about. Um, and, and that way, like kind of, um, ease some of the transition period as well and, and poten- potentially create some more opportunity for scale. So um, tell me a little bit, you guys have done some things right away with the brand that, that you know, you guys took control November 1st, insane time to take control of FC goods, considering uh, how this all worked. And, and we've told people before, we kind of got the conversation started. I think it was in May, Mike, is that right? Yeah. yeah all right. Yeah. And so we closed at the end of October um, and then you guys took over right before black Friday. Um, and, um, and so obviously we, we were in it to gather the transition people who heard me talk through our black Friday plans. I was talking about FC goods, just like I was talking about other brands because, you know, we were really right in it with you guys still, um, and will be in a lot of ways going forward. But, um, uh, tell me about some of the things that you guys saw right away that you guys could see that we were doing badly. Um, I, you know, people who have listened to this podcast have heard me talk about a lot of these brands. So there'll be some familiarity with that. I can fill in any gaps where you guys um, are talking about it, but uh, tell us some things that, that you look at and go like you, you, four or 500 was doing badly here. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. So I'll do two right away. And then Eric will, Eric will add to it. Um, and by the way, everybody knows this is with all due respect. This is just, we're learning from one another. And so we've learned stuff from your team and from your colleagues at CTC, um, and we value that greatly. But even during our negotiations, even during our discussions and our get to know over those months, you guys are just way behind on the um, on your cash situation in terms of uh, just inventory, for example. And we don't have many seasonal products that are this heavy by modal. I mean, you have a a two period, you know, two times during the year that you sell, uh, that FC, we, we, I keep saying you, um, we have now in FC Goods this 
uh, two periods during the year where we sell a majority of, of product and you just can't not have the product, right? And it's not a short preparation cycle um, from start to finish. So that's one area. <clears throat> Yeah. So, so on that note, I mean, what you're referring to there, right. Is that, and I, and again, people have heard me say this, we, we stocked out, we stocked out of product at every holiday moment we've ever had um, for FC goods. Um, and 75% of FC goods revenue comes in uh, father's day and, and holiday basically. So there's about, there's about 60 days during the year that does the ma- vast majority of uh, FC goods revenue. So, um, planning for that is really, has, has been really hard for us. I think one of the things that I've um, so, so one, there was a straight up cash limitation. There's no question. That's part of the deal that we just, um, didn't do that. But then secondly, like an area that we have been weak is just thinking better about finance. Like just, we didn't do a very good job of thinking about the options for limited cash and the challenge of cash flow relative to a highly seasonal business. Um, and uh, that's something that actually partly Mike from conversations I've had with you that we're trying to think a lot better about in the future is just like going, wait a minute, what, like, why are we limiting inventory? That's not going to expire or anything like that. What, what is the actual cash risk here of like overstocking? There actually isn't much of one. There's plenty of ways to finance that because it's an asset which that you can borrow against. And there's like, I mean, there's just a million options in the D2C world of, of, of potential ways, even if it's not the, the cheapest option, the actual relative risk of buying too much inventory for a brand where you can project fairly clearly that you're going to sell it and it's not going to expire is pretty low. Um, and uh, we just have thought poorly about that in the past. So go ahead, Mike. Yeah. So we worry about that. And, uh, you know, Eric will tell you, unless there's a COVID pandemic that shuts down transportation completely, you do not want to have to come in my office and explain why we stocked out. Um now, at the same time, <laughs> we focus pretty intensely on our, our inventory volume and the move, the velocity of it and the pricing. And, and, and like I said, there's a lot that goes on with 15,000 SKUs to think about what to replenish when and how. But stocking out was one of the things we saw right away. The other thing that I would tell you, and we haven't broken the code on this yet, we will, and you guys know we're looking at it, is your sourcing of your raw material. Um, is a, it's just not a process that we're going to live with as we scale this thing, as we take it four or five times in a short time frame. And by the way, I don't know if your listeners know the success that y'all had with FC Goods in your own short time frame. You guys scaled it tremendously from where you got it. So you did that very successfully. So we're just talking about the opportunities for the next levels of uh, scaling, and we'll figure out the sourcing and just a couple quick side notes. Yeah, people have heard, by the way, the story of kind of where we started with FC Goods and where we got it in the past episode that we already recorded. We um, Taylor and Aaron and I talked about that some. And um, yeah, we're proud of that. And I want to turn this over to Eric. Uh, but first, I want to say two quick side stories. Eric talked about how his dad brought him into the business 10 years ago, and he was interested, and he started to put stuff on eBay, you know, to get more room in the garage. But the real story behind that is his dad said, you know, when, we're, when this is completely turned over, you have to pay me for the business. Eric said, how much? And he said, the cost of the inventory. So Eric's whole motivation was, I want to sell all the inventory. Like I want, if it doesn't move, I want it out of here. <clears throat> so he was very motivated that way. And, and the other thing to know is this business, our values are very hands-on oriented. Now, as we've grown and scaled to nine figures and several, you know, a couple hundred people working in multiple states and locations, uh, 
it, it takes on different infrastructure and organizational construct. But I relabeled Eric's office as we while we were in the midst of negotiations to the uh, manager of uh, of glove sourcing, because at any moment in time there were fifty to two hundred gloves in his office. Because as we were evaluating you, he's figuring out where do I get gloves from, so he's going to the local play it again sports or whatever it is. And he's on eBay and he, and he's learning everything he can. Now he has a passion for baseball, but that's also how we, we dig into things um, and get to understand it from the ground up. So Eric, there's my backdrop for you. <laughs> so a uh, couple of things. Uh, here's a, everybody that's listening can Google this. I did. And there's a few of these left. So go ahead and buy one on eBay and send it to the custom pastime program. But Nip, there's a there's Nippy Jones is a really famous player, so Google Nippy Jones. You'll love the story, and then go buy, buy a Nippy Jones glove on eBay. And I did that, and I'll have my own custom Nippy Jones wallet. But <clears throat> so Mike was right. I, I was buying wallets even before we owned the company because I was really concerned about inventory. And so Mike, you know, pats himself on the back pretty nicely, saying that we don't want to run out of inventory, <laughs> and we don't, but we do. In, in our own business too. But what we do, what we do when that happens is we raise the price to slow down sales. And so that was the first thing that we did, knowing that we we're gonna stock out, we're gonna start raising the price. So we did one price increase on FC goods fairly early in this. And then we did a second one on some products uh, a little bit later. Um, and so we're so let me say something about that because that was a good that was a good um uh um like different instincts colliding in a way that I think was a really helpful experience for me. Um, we raised prices of our trifold from 145 to I think 195. So, uh, yeah, it first went 145 to 165. Saw no slowdown in sales velocity, and so went from and so immediately what I heard the conversation was was. As soon as that happened, Jason, who's who's leading the FC Goods team, said to Mike, oh, "Awesome, check this out. We went from 145 to 165, no slowdown." And then maybe the two of you both said, "Okay, so then what should you have raised the price to?" And I mean, that's just that's a great. In the ecom, the entrepreneurial world, there is nothing done less scientifically than pricing, like. People, and, and also it becomes one of the hardest things for people to move. They feel so deep, deep concern about changing the price of their products, or particularly raising the price of their products. And like, like they're going to have a giant backlash from customers. Now, I pushed on that a little bit before because we were raising the price in the trifold like the day before or, or like two days before Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend. Um, and then we were going to offer people something. We didn't do 20% off. Maybe we just did the free monogramming offer. Anyway, um, we, we were going to basically frame it to people as if there was a discount right after raising the price. And I thought you might actually get some serious backlash from not from the price raise per se, but from the timing of it relative to the promotional moment. Um, and that didn't happen. I mean, it just did not happen. People, you got a couple people like that. And of course, customer service just deals with them and says, Oh, we'll honor the old price. No problem. And, um, and you know, it's going to trickle in. And, and the, the reminder to me is like, First of all, when you have a product that you're stocking out of constantly, unless that's part of your strategy, which for some brands it actually is, um, then um, 
then there is a real element here of like all you're doing when you raise the price is just getting more margin and slowing down the sales velocity in a way that can be really, really good. Um, you're probably attracting a better customer too, by the way, by, by charging more. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that, that was like a great moment for me of going like you guys just all you guys think about, I feel like is sales velocity relative to price and margin. And so like, for you, that just felt like it was an automatic instinct of what to do when you're stocking out of a product, even though we had, so we thought we were gonna be able to stock a lot more of the product in this case, it didn't happen. And then, yeah. The other thing that we're thinking about uh, in relation to that, you know, and bundling is a big deal. So we're going to do some more bundling more than you guys probably did in the past. But the other thing is one of your best promotions is the free monogramming. Um, we're going to bring monogramming in-house quick, you know, not fast enough for me very soon. And so my goal is to be do, do something like don't give away the free monogramming because that's high margin. Um, give away a, or half price wallet number two. And now we got a shot at two monogrammings, high margin monogramming at, at 25 bucks a piece. So rather than give away the, that piece, we're going to give away a wallet that they're probably not buying anywhere, not give away, but discounted, or maybe it's a keychain or something like that. And now I can get them for two monogrammings. So that's coming soon. The other thing we did. That, um, so that's another thing I just, again, to sort of take away for people here, like, thinking about the unit economics and your offer structure and your offer building is so crucial. Like the kind of thing you're talking about there with bundling is something we're trying to do a lot more across our brands as well. And part of the reason too, is that there's such a um, massive, there's, there's like immediate economy of scale and shipping and everybody in the e-com world knows about how brutal shipping has been lately. And there's been, you know, even, even as surcharges start to decrease, they're not gone yet. Like the, the surcharge on one item is the same as a surcharge on two items, as long as they're in the same package. And that makes a massive difference, right? So at, like, even, even if you're working with a 3PL, like it's always going to be the case that the first pick is way more expensive than the second pick. And so, um, so for all of those reasons, like if you can get people to buy two products, there's often massive margin savings so that you can give a customers tons of perceived value at very little cost to yourself. So what you're talking about bundling wise is awesome. Now we've so far not done a ton of that in part because we've never been able to um, generate product secondary products to the wallets that we really thought we could sell a lot of. But I actually wonder if that's part of the reason we haven't been able to sell a lot of them is that we didn't bundle them very well. So maybe somebody doesn't want a belt or a toiletry bag or a keychain as the only thing they want. But if you can make it a value add, um, you know, price engineer the uh, manufacturing the way that you want to get the monogramming going so that, like you said, that's high margin, especially if you bring it in house, massive, massive, massive operational efficiency. I mean, you can get like, we're charging 25 bucks for that. You could probably save five bucks on the margin at least by bringing that in house um, in terms of the cost of that for you guys, which makes a huge difference. Um, so, um, so you put all those things together and now you've really got something where maybe you can get an AOV raise, get more products in people's hands um, and get some margin back in the process. And like, that's just a giant win. So just like building your offer structure um, to reflect your unit economics in a way where there's real savings is, is like, is crucial value engineering that offer. So I'm a baseball card guy from way back and I'm a collector of baseball memorabilia and things like that. So the limited series, I think is the coolest thing. And that is just awesome. Okay. So this, is, I, I'm just going to prep people for what you're about to say. Cause I know what you're going to say right now. And I think this is like perhaps the most interesting thing that happened so far for FC goods is your background as a collector and your instincts on that series versus what we did with it, because I'm a huge baseball guy. People know that, but I'm not a collector. Um, and so like your knowledge of that scene really made sense to me. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I'm, 
like for people who don't know, our limited edition series is an occasional release that we do where we do, we've done typically 50 wallets, give or take 20, basically. Um, uh, where it's like all glove leather on the whole wallet instead of just like 25% glove leather or 30% glove leather, or whatever. Um, and we sell them at a premium price point. Traditionally, we've sold them at $295 per wallet. Uh, at, for our kind of higher end, 295, 325. And then the lower end ones are like 225. And we did one series where the leather was 70 years old as walls from the 50s, your gloves from the 50s that we made wallets out of, we went to 395. Um, other than that, we'd never gone above that. So, okay, Eric, go ahead. So that's the context. Went the baseball card route. And if it was a Mickey Mantle or a Willie Mays, a named player, Phil Rizzuto, um, the price went significantly up. We, we kept some of these limited wallets at, you know, in that $300 range. And then there was a middle point of just, this wallet is just cool. It doesn't have a name on it, but it's got some great markings. And that maybe was in between the, the top end. And so these top end wallets, we, I think we priced it over $600. Um, and there's an interesting story. Somebody bought a Phil Rizzuto one for six, $625 over the holidays. And it came back as a return. Not surprising, I guess. And we just put it back into the the old link. And so there's just one for sale and somebody bought it right away and then asked, can you make me another one? And so we're going it, to, it's, and it's going to go through the customs pastimes program. Uh, but so it was not, so it was, yeah, that was just a really interesting thing that happened with the return, but the price went up. So coming soon, <clears throat> we're going to have something called the, the FC goods vault. And so we're going to have, so we like having inventory on hand. We're going to make like a ton of Mickey Mantles, Kirby Puckett's, George Brett's, all the, all the names that, that, are, that are popular. And then we're going to put them in the vault and we're going to release like 10 of these at a time for two or three days. And then we're going to close the vault back down. So it's going to be like we can, if we need to do sales, we just want to do something fun. If we want to increase engagement. The other thing that we really want to do is release one wallet from the vault every day and have a countdown timer when it's gone, it's gone. Um, Operationally, that might be a challenge, but that's probably going to be a $600 wallet. Like that could pay for one person's salary in South Dakota all year just to run one wallet per day if they'll sell. And and we'll give we'll give that give that a roll. I, I like this is another thing we've been talking about a lot. So the first of all, like you guys charge way more for these limited edition wallets than we ever did, and now you're engineering the actual the glove buying much more for the price that you want to get. And like, I mean, I just, the price elasticity, just like, just listen, just hear what Eric just said. We were selling, we would have sold that Phil Rizzuto wallet for 295. Eric was selling it for 650, uh, right? Is that right? 650? Like, yes. Yeah. I mean, more than double the price and that price elasticity was built into that product that we were just sitting on. We were just, we were just giving, just giving away $300 every time. Um, and I mean, the point of those limited edition series has always been for FC goods, more brand building than actual profit, but Hey, like across 50 wallets, like that's across six releases a year that ends up adding up. And, um, and especially if you can now add some of these things like the vault and some of that, and to really appeal to the collector kind of base and to start digging into that a little bit more and really put resources into that. It's exactly the kind of thing that like we were doing badly because we were stretched too thin and trying too many times, but you guys come to it fresh with a new pair of eyes basically and say like, okay, um, this is something where there's like a leverage point here that we should really try something with. And I, I, I really wonder if like you're still underpriced. Like, <laughs> So <laughs> thank you. So we're, especially in the vault, we may put some, like we have a really cool, call it Carl Yastramski one. We have a really cool Mickey Mantle wallet. 
And we're going to source gloves specifically for this so we can pay a little bit more for these gloves. Let's say a Joe DiMaggio, like there's just not a lot of those out there. Um, and so we're going to be sourcing these things knowing that we're going to sell this triple crown Mickey Mantle for like $1,000. There's not very many customers for this, but there's also nobody else doing this really. So, um, and, yeah, and, that, and that customer is going to engage with the brand and they're going to be really excited about it and super pumped on it. And now you've got not just like a customer, but a fan, you're going to have real devotion built into that. And because like, you know, with the design elements, particularly Robbie, who, uh, you know, I've referenced in this podcast before has just done a killer job building beautiful packaging. I always remember the conversation with Robbie where he was telling me about what his vision for packaging was. I was like, yeah, we really need to address FC goods packaging. He goes, Oh no, no, I have it. And he like grabs a napkin or whatever. And just like draws, here's what the box is going to look like. Here's the inside outside. Like he just is a kind of guy who just cares about delivering something awesome to people. So, um, you know, you kind of put the instincts that you have there, Eric, with somebody like that. And Robbie, you know, is going to keep Robbie and I, in some ways, are going to keep talking with you guys, working with you guys. There's an earn out on this deal we've talked about. So we definitely are motivated, like Mike said, to to keep um, doing this with you guys to, to make it awesome. Um, but I think that is like so fascinating because we've always sort of thought like, how do we get away from the limited edition series is like a core part of it. And you're going like opposite. How do we like this can't be the whole business, but how do we make this into something even cooler, even better, even more profitable and just put the resources into doing that. And like, yeah, I, I just love it. I like, as we talk about that vault idea, one wallet a day idea, like it's going to work. I, it's going to totally work. And, and I think what you'll do is actually increase the customer engagement with the brand for even the customer who doesn't want to pay that much money. Like, even if you, you can imagine a social feed where there's the wallet each day or something or an email each day or whatever, customers are going to want to open it just to see Man, look at that one. That one is really, really cool. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, a couple things on that. One, I remember when we talked about the limited edition brands, and I'm not the baseball fan that you and Eric are, and so, but when I heard your explanation, well, we don't actually make money on those. It's just keep our audience engaged. And I went, as we got closer to the deal, and I went to Jason, and I said, you'll have nothing in the budget for loss leading anything. Like, you go figure out how you promote and market and engage your audience that makes the money in the process because that's the fair exchange of of that equation but uh, but but your audience should know because you're very you're very deferential Andrew and and you know we appreciate it from our end um, and we have seen things where we think we can add to the equation but we've learned a lot from you and your team and we don't take at face value that our experiments with pricing are are instantaneously successful. There's trade-offs we don't yet understand. We were in a very unique fourth quarter selling time um, because of COVID impact and, and all that was going on around the country with that. And so uh, we're, you know, and we had limited, you know, inventory. And so we were we were playing with what's the impact. And so we understand, and we've had talks with you to understand the cautions. Um, and we're, tr- but we're willing to tr- fail fast. We're willing to try stuff learn from it, and then adjust back where needed. So we appreciate the relationship with the premium brand customer, with the repeat customers. I think the vault that Eric and, and Jason are talking about is just going to be another way to stay engaged with those customers. Even the ones who won't buy get to look and see and, and continue that experience uh, ongoing. So we've learned a ton in the short time, uh, especially leading up to execute, you know turnover of the of the business and since, and um, we understand that just because we price high and we sell a few doesn't mean that's the answer. There's trade-off of of everything, and we're 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 trying to 
figure that out together and use y'all's expertise. Yeah, but there's there's a willingness to try it that I think is still crucial for people, Mike. Like I think like this is the thing that I think a lot of people need to hear is like I said, like people just have a sanctimonious relationship with price in a way that's really weird. So, um, and, and it's, and you guys just kind of have a mathy relationship with it in a way that I think is a lot healthier, honestly. Um, so those, yeah. Hey, Andrew, those folks need to spend one day on Amazon. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. they'll fix that fast. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right. I, we, we, uh, we need to wrap up, but, um, I have, um, one question give me, give me the very short answer here. Um, I'll go Mike, then Eric, uh, what, if this is a smashing success for Weiser, what does this brand look like at what revenue number or whatever? Um, you know, I've told people like we got it to about 3 million when we sold it to you. So, um, in, in terms of annual revenue. So w- what does this look like if it's an absolute smash success, Mike, uh, in a, in a sentence or two, like, is it a revenue number or is it a, is it a, like, you know, w- when you envision the future of it, what does it look like? So improved profitability at quadruple sales in less than three years, with at least six cousins that have joined it in neighboring premium sales from our white label goods. Oh gosh, that's so clear. I love that. Eric? That is, I can't add anything to that. You know, he talks about cousins. That's beautiful. That's the smashing success. So, and, and it's probably, and you know, I don't like to talk about killing cousins, but like it's ending up with 10 cousins, but uh, having 30 along the way. Uh, yeah, no, no, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, just say Mike really quickly, a little bit more about what you mean by a cousin. So, uh, take one of our white label products that we currently sell in the mass marketplace and repackage it, represent it, reformat it as a premium experience, uh, item similar to the way FC goods is positioned with its clientele. And I believe out of our thousands of products that we make, as Eric says, to be the, the best of the least, meaning just a marginally percentage less cost and all the feature functionality, I think we have a number of them that are ripe for that um, direct-to-consumer, premium sale, relationship-driven, social media influence sale. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So more D2C brands out of the stuff that you guys have, you guys get the learnings and can do more. And I think you're right, Eric, that it's, you try a bunch of them and you um, scale winners and kill losers. You feed the Eagles, starve the pigeons, just like with anything else. Um, yeah, great. Okay. Um, I want to make sure people know a couple things as I wrap up here. Um, the first is that you guys are, uh, are, uh, I have lauded your business instincts and your brand instincts and all those things on this. You are also fantastic humans. And I've told uh, you guys that before, but um, we've loved working with you because of the integrity, the care that you guys have for your employees that comes, I think just really as core to who you guys are. It's uh, Weiser is a really impressive company run by some really impressive people. And so we are so grateful for the partnership. Um, I say that in part just so that people hear me say that, but also because um you guys still sell a lot of stuff on Amazon and there's a lot of D2C brands who are right now in the world that actually we are in at 4 400 which is like trying to scale our Amazon business. And there's a couple of ways to do that. But one way that you should explore if you're listening to this podcast is you should explore selling your stuff to Weiser to be a distributor for you and letting them do your, just run your Amazon business and build it. They will do a great job. Um, they obviously know what they're doing there. And so selling product to them to distribute, um, they are going to be conscious of their margins and yours. They're going to want both parties to win. That's been clear at every single step of, I've ever had with you guys, including your team who I've talked to about um, the order that you guys just placed for uh, slick products. So I'm, I'm like, you know, 
we sold you guys the, the brand FC goods. And now we are selling you uh, some slick actual products as a step into saying like, Hey, maybe there's another bit of the relationship here where you guys can distribute um, some products for us on Amazon. Um, you guys have some advantages there, for, particularly for our aerosol products that we just don't have access to. So it's a great step in. Um, so if people want to do that, uh, maybe Mike, where should people reach out to you? If you uh, want that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We do. And in fact, uh, if they, if they don't want to sell us their product at wholesale and we'll retail it, you know, for them, which would be a mistake that they don't, we'll also be their storefront from them. And we have a, we have a business that, that does that, uh, just a different company name. It's, it's all part of our business. Uh, and they could just, they can just email me, Mike at wiserdistributing.com. Cool. And I have put that in the show notes so that you guys can get that due. Check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so I think that's about everything I wanted to say. Eric, Mike, thanks so much for your time. I know we went a couple minutes over. I appreciate it. And um, and uh, I'm excited about this. My hope for the future here for FC Goods is the same as yours, which is that it uh, continues to be a great brand that uh, is not only profitable and all those things, but um, and, and is growing, but is uh, continuing to provide an awesome product for customers who love it. I know Robbie and I both, um, in particular, as the two guys who are working on it the most on our side of things, um, we're a little sad to see it go. We've, we've had our, our, our hearts are tied to it in a real way. So, um, passion project for us as well. So we're, um, we're excited to see what comes next. So thanks so much for your time. And like I said, check those show notes, um, to reach out to Mike about selling them your stuff to put on Amazon. So there you have it. We've now wrapped up, uh, the week, of well, a couple episodes anyway, um, going through our sale of FC goods. Uh, you know, the, the point of all of this was not to pat ourselves on the back, I mean, we're excited about it, of course, but the point of it was hopefully to give you a sense of sort of the inner workings of the whole thing from our point in the journey. So um, just there's, there was so much that we learned in this process. And, I, and as, as I reflect on it as a leader of 40400, it's uh, striking to me just how much sort of intellectual capital we gained in this process alongside anything else going through the process of um, acquiring at the business at the time we did, as you've now heard, it was very different than what 4400 was uh, or what is now. Um, growing it in the early stages, building it, just all, just all of the elements that go into um, everything about this, and, and of course, selling it as well, um, has been really a serious learning um, uh, journey for me. So, um, hopefully, in some way, we've been able to bring some of that out for you so you can get a little farther ahead than where I would have been um, and where I was in some of this process and and uh, and gain some, and, and, you know get some of the runoff of that intellectual capital. So thanks so much for listening to these episodes. If you have any questions about any of this stuff, I'd love to hear them. Um, you can reach out to me at podcast at 4x400.com or hit me up on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. Uh, and as always, we appreciate when you rate and review. That said, I hope you have a great rest of your week. and We'll talk to you next time.